Good evening, Living Truth. Turn with me, if you would, please, in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12 will be in verse 18 tonight. Hebrews 12, 18. And as you're flipping there, I'm going to tell you a little bit of a story. Uh, I'm going to tell you a story about what my family and I did this summer. This summer, we went on an adventure. We went to go see, uh, sadly, some of our friends and family that have left this great state of California and moved to Texas. Anybody else have friends or family that, like, left the state and went somewhere? Yeah. So this is our chance, the family. We've never been in a plane before as a family. It was a great chance for us to go out and, and, and visit them. Our journey had us going from Houston to Dallas, and we drove that, that drive up. It's about three to four hours, depending on traffic. And so my buddies, before I even went on the trip, the, the friends who I have in Texas are like, you know, there's a place you have to go on your drive between Houston and Dallas. And I said, oh, yeah, where's that? And they said, it's a place called Bucky's. And I was like, oh, Bucky's, what is it? He's like, it's a gas station. And I was like, what do you mean? I got to go out of my way to see a gas station? He's like, no, it's no ordinary gas station. It's like the gas station. And I was like, you got to do more than that, but I'm not, there's no way. And he's like, look at it online, check it out. It's going to change your mind. I was like, okay. So I start doing some digging, some research, and I'm like, oh, this looks pretty cool. And it's a place I actually purposed. I was like, oh, I want to go. And so... I wanted to go, but I had my wife and two kids who I had to convince to go like a 20-minute trip out of our way to go see a gas station. So I call a little family meeting and say, hey, guys, come around. I want to talk with you guys. There's a place I want to make a stop on our way from Houston to Dallas. They said, great, Dad, where is it? I said, it's called Bucky's. They're like, oh, that's a cool name. What is it? I'm like, it's a gas station. They're like, come on, gas station. We're not going to go out of our way. And I'm like, let me show you some things. It's a pretty cool gas station. And so I showed them online. I'm like, hey, look, it's, it's basically a gas station. But if you look in the back there, there's a building. It's like a small little Costco attached to the gas station. It's this huge structure. And inside the structure, when you compare it to a regular gas station, a regular gas station has like a beef jerky stand. And I was really speaking the language to my, my, my son because he was into eating a lot of beef jerky. And I'm like, Bucky's has a beef jerky wall. Like it's just insanely over the top. And I said, like a regular gas station, it has, you know, regular station has hot dogs that every day you move it forward one roll, you know, and taquitos as well. But Bucky's has like, oh my gosh, a whole army making brisket and pulled pork and sausages and candy. And like, it's just all fresh. It's amazing. And it's all you can eat. It's just, it's wonderful. The biggest thing that got me, though, when talking about Bucky's and really what cemented it for me is that a regular gas station bathroom is like something you just would avoid at all costs. It's just like, no, we're not, we're not doing that. I, I should have held it or don't you know, go early or whatever it is. Bucky's bathrooms, though, are totally different. They have this light system above there where red light means don't go near it. Somebody's in there. Green light means it's open. And so, okay, there's no more like looking underneath the stall or looking through the crack to see if someone's in there, right? Like you can just tell it's a beautiful system. But the best part is after someone leaves the stall, an attendant rushes in and cleans and wipes everything down before the next person goes in. And that I just had to see for myself. I'm like, that alone cemented my having to go. And so I sort of twisted the arm of my family and like, okay, we're gonna go to Bucky's. And we saw and we went and it was as amazing as you could imagine. And so it was excellent. But I bring that story up to say, I had to tell my family beforehand where we were going to get them a little bit excited about it. 
to get them to agree with me to go on the journey. I knew they'd like it when they got there, but they're going to like it a lot more with the anticipation and the expectation and really a grasp of like what they're going to go see. Does that make sense? And so I'm going to do the same thing with you here today. I use those comparison shots, the contrasting shots between you know, the, the old restroom and the good restroom or the food in here, and we're going to be doing a lot of that tonight too. We're going to be looking at a tale of two mountains, one being from the Old Testament, we call it Mount Sinai, and one being a great picture, a beautiful picture of heaven called Mount Zion. And we're going to look at those two in great detail, but I'm going to start, even before we pray, just to give you a very brief overview and say, here's where we're going tonight, that way we know and we'll enjoy the journey together. Verses 18 through 21 are going to be about Mount Sinai. It's that simple. Mount Sinai is going to be, so you know, it's going to be a picture of the law and judgment. Then you have in verse 22 and 20 through 24 are going to be about Mount Zion. Mount Zion is going to be that great picture of heaven, beautiful picture of mercy and grace. And we're going to finish in verses 25 through 29. Those five verses are going to be about God as a consuming fire. That fire of the Lord is going to be both a judgment fire and a refining fire. So that's the overview. That's what this passage is about. If you're breaking it off into simple sections, it's those three sections. It makes a lot of sense. But one of the things I wanted to go over even before we pray and dig in is going to be, why does this section happen after verses 16 and 17? Verses 16 and 17 have to do with Esau. And to some, you might think they're not really connected, but I want to let you know that they are absolutely connected. And I want to just briefly show you how. In the previous verses, God is reminding the Hebrews of Esau. We see that. Esau, if you'll remember, despised the birthright, sold it really, and traded it for some soup. Just gave it away. The Hebrews here are being tempted to depart from their faith and go back to their legalistic system. You see, they've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, but now they're being drawn back. They're like, well, the law was maybe good too. And I'm following this Jesus, and life is hard. The, the community is not accepting of me. My, my old life doesn't really like that I'm doing this thing, and so I'm being pressured to go back to the law. Esau's birthright is a picture of Jesus, and the soup is a picture of the law. Understand, if the Hebrews want to trade Jesus and go back to the law like Esau traded his birthright for soup, God, unfortunately and sorrowfully, will actually let them but God is warning the Hebrews that Esau later regretted it with tears, but he wouldn't repent, and therefore he couldn't have the birthright or the blessing back. And so that picture of Esau serves as a warning. Esau did what you're thinking about doing. He's trading up that which is better for that which is lesser. Don't do it. He regretted it. And so he's going to use another illustration now as we dig into the next verses, and starting at 18, he's going to tell them, like, you know what? I'm going to give you one final illustration to warn you that you might just see where you're going if you go back down that route. And I'm going to show you a much better route, but it's just a big warning. And so we're going to start in Hebrews 12, 18. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord. Thank you for loving us the way you do. Thank you for being as perfect and holy as you are. We come tonight, we are gathered here to hear from you, from your word, led by the power of your Holy Spirit. So we thank you that you meet us in this place. We thank you that you're always with us. You never leave us nor forsake us. 
but I'm asking now that you would just draw nearer to us. We're taking the step of faith, coming here tonight, leaving behind the things of the world and just saying, we're here, Lord. We want you. We want more of you. And so honor your, the promise of your word, please, Lord. It says, as we draw near to you, you'll draw near to us. So we come to you now. We love you, Father, because you loved us first. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews 12, we dig in. I'll read it, starting in verse 18. Again, verses 18 through uh, the first couple of verses are going to be just about Mount Sinai, Old Testament. It says, For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness, and gloom, and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command that if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. Again, Mount Sinai, the place where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments after they had come out of Egypt. And on a map, I just love maps. It makes me grounded. A map, it looks like this. Here you have, to the south there, you have the African continent. Uh, the one that looks like Mario's boot is the Arabian Peninsula. And then you have what I always refer to as the slug in between. The river looks exactly like a slug. You can never unsee it. Mount Sinai sits directly between the antenna. So we're going to be right in the middle of the antenna. I'm going to put a little red dot there so you can begin to see it. But that is where the actual Mount Sinai is. And as you, as you zoom in a little bit, you begin to see again, here go the antenna. We're right in the middle there. And the mountain gets a little bit clearer and clearer until you kind of see it. Boom. There it is, the actual Mount Sinai. And we have people that have actually been to this mountain and have taken pictures. And so you can walk up the backside of the mountain. And here someone's taking a picture to give you some scale. It, it is even just in its modern day, without the clouds and the fire and the thundering and the lightning and the earth shaking, it's really kind of a scary looking place. Jagged rocks, steep cliffs, not really a place I want to call home. It doesn't look very good. And in fact, many artists have taken the words of the Bible and have, have been there personally. And when they redrew it, here's a very famous picture of Mount Sinai. You'll see this is Cecil B. the Mill's take of it on the Ten Commandments. That's Charlton Heston as uh, Moses there in the picture of the rock. A lot of people and artists have taken time to draw what they thought Mount Sinai looked like. And you'll see the fire, the lightnings, the smoke, the sheer terror on faces is captured. They literally put the person in the foreground, like showing you, like, we can't look. We don't want to hear this. It's just too scary. But where they get that information from about Mount Sinai comes really from Exodus chapter 19 in the Old Testament. And so I'm not going to read you the whole chapter, and you'll see here, I'll put some of the verses that I'm at on the left side, but I'm going to be skipping around, but it's all from Exodus 19. And if you start in verse 1, Exodus 19 gives you a time frame. I like knowing where and when I am at all times. Exodus 19 tells you it's in the third month after they came out of Egypt. If you think of Egypt as 1442 or so B.C., I always just round the calendar off to make it easy. Think of them coming out as on January 1st. And when something says it's the third month, just think of it as March. And if they're going to be there on the third day of the third month, it's March 3rd. So I think of this in my head, again, March 3rd, 1442 BC, in that place between the antenna, okay? It says in the third month, after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. 
And let them be ready for the third day, for on the third day the, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And this is God speaking to Moses. He says, You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain, to the mountain, but not on the mountain. So when they shout the, the, the horn, everybody comes up next to the mountain, but not up on it. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord spoke to Moses and said, Go down and warn the people, so they do not break through to the Lord to gaze and many of them would perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, or else the Lord will break out, even against them. And so again, that picture of the violent quaking, the smoke rising like a furnace, thundering clouds, like it would just, it grew, you know, the pictures of it, just people thought it must have absolutely looked like this, and I think they're right. Here's a picture of the people here at the base of the mountain at night, what it must have looked like. It was terrifying. Absolutely terrifying to be anywhere near this mountain. And so the, here's again the people just frightened of the mountain. So again, if you take the simple takeaway that these first four verses are God describing Mount Sinai, the system of the law and judgment, which these people are thinking about going back to. He's like, do you see where it was initiated? Do you see where it started? Is that really what you want for yourself? But I told you it's a tale of two mountains. And so we're going to talk a lot more about Mount Sinai. But for right now, I want to start digging into the other mountain. The other mountain we call Mount Zion. And as we continue on in verse 22, we're going to see the Bible states, it says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, you've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. And so we start back in verse 22. These three verses, four verses, I'm going to break down. Go line by line amongst these three so we understand what they've come to. Again, he's saying that these Hebrews have not come to Zion, sorry, not come to Sinai, but they have, in fact, through faith in Jesus, now come to Mount Zion. And he's going to remind them what they have in this Mount Zion. And understand when he talks about Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, you should understand what Zion really means. Because this is being used in a term that maybe you're like, I've read about Zion. It didn't, it didn't sound like that when I read it. Understand that the word Zion appears in the Bible about 160 or so times. 
Okay? The very first time it appears is actually in 2 Samuel chapter 5, the very first appearance. It refers to when David uh, was capturing the city for the first time. Samuel, 2 Samuel 5, 6 says, the king, and this is David, and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land who spoke to David, and they said, oh, you're not going to come in here. The blind and the lame will repel you, thinking David can't come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David, and then David dwelt in the stronghold, and then it called and called it the city of David, and David built all around from the Milo and inward. So this city was relatively small at first, and it, was, it had a little fortress in there called Zion. David captured Zion. And then as he's there, he begins to build out from there, and he kind of builds a bigger city. And that city has, over time, taken on the name as well of Zion. It's still called Jerusalem to this day, but it's like the difference between calling it Corona and it's the circle city. They're, they're the same thing. So here you have David as he's taken the city. He also calls it Zion. And, and this is kind of cool because now Zion is getting bigger and bigger. But Zion, as you read through the 160 or so times in the Bible, becomes known as the place where God dwells. So yeah, he was with David. So where David was, that city was called Zion. And then when he's in the city, uh, you know that David's son Solomon builds a temple. And then when Solomon builds a temple, that is sometimes called Zion. When that nation grows bigger and larger, the nation is sometimes, the nation of Israel is sometimes called Zion. Sometimes you're going to have um, the entire country called Zion. Um, God's people are called Zion. So again, if God dwells amongst his people, the people get the name of Zion. So Zion is a place, it's a, it's a peoples, it's a nation, it's a country, it's a city, it's a fortress. It also, in its ultimate form, all those point to the place where God ultimately and fully dwells, that is heaven. And it's being used in that sense here in the Hebrews passage to indicate heaven. And we know that because it says, Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So we know it's being used, this word Zion, this Mount Zion, as a, as a picture of heaven. And we're going to paint that picture in a little bit more detail as we go on. Not just is it the, living, the city of the living God. What else is going to be around this Mount Zion that they've come to? They've come to, it goes on to say, a myriad of angels. It's a word I wasn't really familiar with, a myriad. How many is that? A myriad is actually 10,000. 10,000 of something's a myriad. Like you have a dozen is 12 or a score is 20. Abraham Lincoln's famous speech, four score and seven years ago. That's four twenties and seven. So 87 years ago was the poetic way he said that. We have names which capture groups of numbers. And so a myriad is 10,000. But sometimes when using the word in a poetic sense, it can just mean like innumerable. Like a lot. Like um, I went into my backyard and found a myriad of spider webs. I didn't really see 10,000 spider webs. I saw a whole bunch of spider webs, right? Revelation 5.11 says, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. And so sure enough, it is true that angels are also there in heaven. Makes sense for most of us. But he goes on to describe a little further. In verse 23, he says, what else are you going to have here in, uh, around, in and around Mount Zion? You're going to have the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. This church of the firstborn, Jesus is the firstborn. The Bible makes that very clear. He is the first and only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We too are children of God if we put our faith in Christ. The Bible says that we're adopted. 
And through that spirit of adoption, that's how we can cry out, Abba, Father, and have a relationship with God the Father. But he is the firstborn, and we are his church, his people. And so this church, this word church, though, some people don't understand the word church if, you, if, if it's new to you. It's not the building place. The word church in the Greek means ekklesia. It's a definition, or the word ekklesia, which means the called out ones. The church means the called out ones. What are we called out from? The church is a community of people that have been called out from darkness and into the light by the blood of Jesus Christ. The church is the collection of people who, by the grace of God, were spiritually called out of the world and into the kingdom of God, where we now have a citizenship. The church is not of this world. That's where we get that phrase from. That's where we get those bumper stickers from. The church has been called out of the world. And so, yeah, the church, they've been, these people have now been, the Hebrews, again, they weren't called to the law. They've been a called to this beautiful idea of a church, the called out ones. And they've been called and have come to, ultimately, again, yeah, Mount Zion is the city of God. But who lives in the city of God except God himself? They've been called and come to God, the judge of all. Understand that simply God dwells in heaven. Acts 7, verse 48 says, However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven, and this is the Lord speaking, heaven is my throne, and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me? See, Solomon was thinking like, Lord, I'm going to build you something. And God's like, you're going to build me something says the Lord, or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? He's like, the earth, I made the earth. It's my footstool. I'm up here in heaven. I am greater than my creation. God dwells in heaven. What else do we have that these people have come to? It says that they've come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. It's really just a list. He is listing all these things one by one by one. Just remind them. What are the spirits of the righteous made perfect? One context, chapter 12 comes after chapter 11. Chapter 11 is the hall of faith, where you have those who, by faith, looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. Those Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Rahab, those who have, who have put their faith that the promises of God will come to pass. And those who, after the coming of Christ, have said, you know what? The death of Christ on the cross and his resurrection, that is the way by which I know I'm getting to heaven. That washes away my sin, and I get to be in heaven forever with the Lord because of that. And those spirits, when those people have perished, and they are present with the Lord, those are the spirits of the, of the righteous who are then made complete and made perfect and we see that picture that heaven's our future home as believers in Christ, those who have come before us and have fallen and, and us one day and those perhaps who are after us. Revelation 21, one through four says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God or the dwelling place of God is among men and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them and he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death, no longer be any mourning or crying or pain 
the first things have passed away. It's that perfect picture of believers and the spirits who then are made perfect and complete. No pain, no sorrow, tears wiped away. These people, the Hebrews, had become a part of that group. That's what awaited them. And they wanted to ditch it. They wanted to sell it like Esau gave it up for his soup. He's reminding them how precious it is. And what else did it say? He said, by the way, you came to Jesus. And he's the mediator of this new covenant. Remember, up to this point, we're talking about Jesus as the priest. Jesus as the better high priest of the order of Melchizedek. Jesus as the perfect sacrifice who sacrificed once, covered all, not a daily sacrifice over and over and over again. And now they're saying, ultimately, Jesus is that mediator. What's that mean to have Christ as your mediator? Uh, a mediator is a go-between. It's the bridge between two parties. That is, in 1 Timothy 2.5, it says, for there's one God and one mediator also between God and men, that is, the man, Christ Jesus. You see, you have here a perfect and holy God, and you have a sinful man, and they're just absolutely apart. God and his holiness can have nothing to do with a sinful man. And so God made the way. He sent the mediator. He humbled himself and came down to us in the person of Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins, to pay the debt that we couldn't pay, to then bring us back in relationship with the Father, to be with him forever in heaven. It's that simple. He is that bridge. He came, he did the work, it's finished, and he brings us now, covering us in his blood, clothing us in his righteousness. He now brought us back to relationship with the Father. That's the mediator. Colossians 1.21 puts it this way. And although you were formerly, formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, although we were like that, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That's what a mediator does. He reconciles. And he brought us back to the Father in heaven. And it says here that they came ultimately, yeah, to Jesus' sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. That had me thinking about the blood of Abel. I'm like, okay, it's interesting. You want to compare the blood of Christ as being better than the blood of somebody else. What's that blood of Abel like? Well, that story comes to us, the blood of Abel comes to us from Genesis chapter 4, verses 3 to 10. Abel, if you don't know, the, the Adam and Eve, it started with the two of them. Well, they had two sons, Cain and Abel. The Bible says, so it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? Verse 7, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, well, sin is crouching at your door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told, this, told Abel, his brother, and it came about, and when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's Abel, your brother? And Cain said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what, what have you done? The voice 
of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. You see the voice that's crying from the ground, the blood of Abel cries out for justice, for vengeance. I was slain, avenge that. This isn't fair. Where's the justice? Someone knocked me off. What do they get for that? To the blood of Abel is just, ugh. Get that guy is what the blood of Abel's crying out. But you see, the blood of Christ is this much better. The Bible declares it, it's just simply better. First Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 says this, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, which you inherited from your forefathers, but you were redeemed with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. Yeah. It's the blood of Jesus releases us from our sins. It's what redeems us and brings us back. Absolutely, this blood is better. See, because the blood of Jesus cries out for mercy and grace and forgiveness. It's just so much better than justice, vengeance. I've done some things wrong in my day. I sure don't want justice to be brought to me for the things I did. And I am so grateful for the mercy of the Lord that makes sure that I don't get what I deserve. And the things that I have, all grace. I look, wife, two beautiful kids, all grace. I don't deserve it, but I got it. And forgiveness, oh, thank you, Jesus. That's what the blood of Jesus cries out about. So it is better, absolutely better. Quick recap, we covered the two mountains. I'm going to show you this. It makes, it's small, but it's a list of the things we just went over. So you're not missing anything if you can't read it. But understand this. He's reminding them, these Hebrews, that you have not come, in their Hebrew sense, to one mountain. You did not come to the mountain that can be touched. These are just direct quotes from the, from the scripture. You did not come to a mountain that can be touched. You did not come to a blazing fire. You did not come to uh, darkness and gloom and whirlwind. And you did not come to the blast of a trumpet and the sounds of words which sound with such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. It is so terrible sounding. Please don't say another word. I can't bear it. They didn't come to that. They left that. They didn't come to that. What did they come to? You have come to Mount Zion, a picture of heaven, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to a myriad of angels. There's great heavenly beings there waiting you. You've come to the general assembly. You're part of the church of the firstborn who also have their citizenship in heaven. You've come to God the perfect judge of all. You've come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, those who are before you who have been slain, who are in Christ, who have faith in the Lord. They're there too. You've come to these great things. You've come to Jesus. Do you need anything else besides that? You've come to Jesus, the mediator of this new covenant, and you've come to the sprinkled blood that he shed, which is better than the blood of Abel. Washes away your sins and redeems you and cleanses you. And now, I'm no math made, but he literally made a list of two things. He's saying, you, you, you've not come here. You've come here. This list is twice as big. What are you doing? Why would you ever want to go back, he's asking them. 
Just look, he says, I've weighed the two options. You want to go back to this system. But this is what I offer you. If you phrase the question and put it in words, it looks like this. Why, after experiencing the grace and mercy and forgiveness found at Mount Zion, would you ever want to go back to Mount Sinai? I thought the week I spent in prepping was all about this question. Why would you ever want to go back? And at first there was this disconnect between the Hebrews, and I'm like, that's just stupid. You're like knuckleheads. That list is obvious. Like, why would you ever go back to that? And then, man, I was, I was reading an article, and it used a word that, like, struck me. And the word was recidivism. Recidivism. Recidivism, we, we often use a recidivism rate. The rate of recidivism is simply this. We have people that get locked up or incarcerated for committing a crime. If you do the crime, you do the time, okay? They get locked up, and then they get sent out. Okay, they, they've done their time. They get set free. If they were to commit a crime again and get locked back up, locked back up well, they go back to jail, and we keep a rate of how many of those people that get set out go back. A simple math is this. If two um, former inmates get set free, they serve their time, and they're free, if one of them goes back into jail because he commits another crime and goes back, that's a recidivism rate of 50%. Does that make sense? One out of two went back. Okay. Well, we have an astronomically high recidivism rate here in the United States. And depending on where you're pulling your data from the Department of Justice or here or there, there's just a range that everybody pretty much agrees upon. And it matters about which years you're talking about, and you can sort it by gender and by age and factor out all kinds of things. But at the conservative level, the lowest rate of recidivism that we have in the United States, 45%. 45% on the low end on the high end, it's closer to 75. Somewhere between one and two and three and four people, when they get out, go right back. And I thought about that for a second. I'm like, man, that seems like you would have learned your lesson, right? And then I thought about me. I thought about how Jesus set me free. You see, I was a slave to sin. I was in my prison, in my cage, I was chained, the Bible said, to sin and trespass. When I gave my life to the Lord, and really I accepted the fact that he gave his life for me, I was set free from that. The Bible says I was set free from my sin, free from the guilt, free from the shame, free from the sin. I was set free. I can simply tell you, just being transparent, that I've, sadly, there's times when I've gone back. And I've gone back, and I've gone back, and I've gone back, and I wish it weren't so but I have. I'm a sinner saved by grace. And so it started to relate a little bit more to these people, these Hebrews. I'm like, man, what do you mean they're tempted to go back? And I'm like, I've gone back. I've gone back. And so why the question for us, if you're thinking of application of this to you, why after experiencing being set free from sin and trespass by the blood of Christ, would you ever want to go back? to your sin. And that's what God's doing here. He's just laying out the list. He's like, yeah, that sin, it seems pleasurable, but really it's just this dark mountain, man. It's, it's, it's Sinai. It's gloom and earth-shaking, quaking fire, and it's no good. You don't want to go back there. What I offer you, 
offer you the company of the church. I offer you the myriad of angels. I offer you like the blood that's better than the blood of Abel. I offer you Jesus, the mediator. I offer you God and the heavenly Jerusalem. I'm offering you all of this and you want to go back? I pray you'd think about that. I pray you'd think about that as you're tempted to go back and we're tempted each of us every day as you're tempted to go back to that sin which God has set you free from, just be thinking about all that he has for you in Christ at Mount Zion. And get that picture in your head of Mount Sinai. That's that the thunder light. Oh, man, I don't want that. I just don't want that. I thank the Lord for his forgiveness every day. And I'll tell you a simple thing. One of the coolest things ever I learned to ever help me, when I, when I sin, you know, the Bible tells us to repent. And when I repent, that's the idea of, of, of turning away from your sin, obviously. I confess my sin, obviously, because he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I confess my sin. I always say, Lord, I sinned. Would you please forgive me? I always ask it in. You know what you should always do? And this was taught to me. You should always do after you confess your sin and you ask him to forgive it. I'll tell you this. Thank him for forgiving it. Because you don't want to be thinking like, it's not like you're asking for like, I hope you do. Would you please you're asking it because you, you want it, you want to receive it, but when you ask for it, follow it up with a thank you. Thank you that I know it's forgiven. Thank you that I know that because of what Christ did, I am forgiven. And walk in that forgiveness. That's the true thing about getting rid of the guilt and the shame and, and really keeping that severed thing. You ask for forgiveness, man, I'll tell you what, just something was taught to me, just thank the Lord for that forgiveness. And then fix your eyes again, just... It's so much better. One mountain has so much more to offer for you than the other. It goes on. We finish up in verse 25 here. Verse 25 says, See to it, you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away him who warns from heaven. It's, it's a simple contrast of, of the two speakers here. So you have Moses who taught uh, and spoke from earth. Moses warned them, says, don't come up the mountain. If you do, you'll die. Stay away. And you had those who came from heaven, Jesus. Jesus we're, I, I say this because we're in Matthew chapter 11 uh, here on Sundays. Jesus says, woe to you, Chorazan. Woe to you, Capernaum. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Tells the Pharisees, the scribes, you brood of viper. He's been warning people this whole time. The voice from heaven has been a warning saying, don't do this thing. Repent of your sin and come to the kingdom. But understand there's a voice which speaks louder in this warning. Voice 26 is is the, the ultimate warning that God's giving. It says, his voice shook the earth then, then as in on the mountain, but now he has promised saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. Again, remember, the earth shook at Sinai. He said, there's a time coming when I'm going to shake not just like a mountain like that. I'm going to shake everything. Heaven and earth is like the universe. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, which is like everything created will be removed, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Ooh, we get interesting here. There's things that are shaken, and things that are not shaken. There are things that will be removed and things that will be remaining. That's where it gets really interesting. You see, 
this ultimate warning is of a judgment. Verse 26 is saying there's an ultimate final judgment coming where there's going to be a big shakeup. Some things, most everything will be gone away and some things will remain. And understand this. The judgment to come, I'm going to fast forward. 2 Peter chapter 3 paints a really, really clear picture about what it's going to look like when that final judgment comes. We call it the day of the Lord. 2 Peter 3 calls it and, says, and refers to it like this. It says, know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all just continues, just as it was from the beginning of creation. Like, ah, oh, nothing's changed. You know, yeah, the earth was created, but look, we're still here, we're still around. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice, or they forget, that the word of God, that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. He's referencing like, yeah, you, you forget that God's brought a judgment before, and he brought it before in the form of water, which we call the flood. The people in their hearts were just continuously evil all the time, the Bible says. And God said, enough, I've got to wipe the earth and start fresh. And so he saved Noah and his wife and his three sons and their three wives, but the rest of the earth was gone. They were judged by water. And he says, well, there's one of fire coming. He says, but by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for the other element that is fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. They're like, oh, nothing's happened and it's been a couple thousand years. And he's like, yeah, but for the Lord, that's like a blink of an eye. It's nothing. Verse nine, the Lord is not slow or slack about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. The only reason he hasn't come yet is because of patience and mercy. Not wishing for any to perish but for all to come to repentance. Each day he waits, more get saved. That's why he hasn't come yet. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? What should we be doing in the light of the fact that judgment is coming? Verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. I head back there, this shaking, a picture of final judgment at the day of the Lord. But there's some things that remain and some things that don't remain. And so he gets into it. He says, you know what? Therefore, we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Let us show gratitude here. The Bible says in some verses, translations, you'll see it says, let us have grace. I think they're both right. You can, you can have and hold that grace and be absolutely grateful for the fact that we're part of a kingdom which is not shaken, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. 
And so verse 28 begins to talk about our response as believers in Christ to the coming judgment. I want to dig into that a little bit with you. Romans 12, 1 says our response should be this. It says, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The Lord is coming. He will be making a judgment. It's that simple. And the God, here now next, in this next verse shows his attribute. The attribute of God. God is a consuming fire. It's as much a truth about God as God is love. God is a consuming fire. And it's this final phrase we're going to end on tonight. I really want to dig into this to show you what does that mean that God's a consuming fire? How does that picture picture into this picture of judgment and shaking and things remaining and things not remaining? How does that all work out with God being a consuming fire? It's pretty simple. It's three points. God's fire is judgment against his people. God's fire is absolutely shown as a judgment against his people. I'll show you this. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, Verse 23, it describes it like this. It says, so watch yourselves. Again, God at the giving of the law, the second giving of the law in Deuteronomy. He says that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you. And don't make for yourselves a graven image in the form of anything against which the Lord your God has commanded you. Don't make something with eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear and mouths that cannot speak, those dumb idols. Don't make those. You're going to get judged if you do, he says. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. God doesn't want to share you. By the nature of God, he says, I do not want to share my special creation, my people with stupid other created things that you want to go and worship them. He's like, you are mine and I am yours. I want you to myself. So the fire specifically talks about, I mean, you see it in the Testament all the time. The Bible says there's a bunch of weeds growing up with the wheat. There's going to be a day coming when there's going to be a separation. But for right now, they're growing up together. There's going to be a fire coming and separating the two. The Bible says that there's, there's sheep and there's wolves in sheep's clothing. And they grow up together. And there's going to be a day that one day, they're separated. God will be coming one day to judge all those who want to be called his people. And he's going to find out which of those really are his. Which of those truly have put their faith in Jesus to be saved. And which are just faking it. Second, we see that God's fire is what we call a judgment against the nations. Deuteronomy 9 goes on to say this. It says, Hear, O Israel, you are crossing over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. Great cities fortified to heaven. Well, they're big cities, but watch this. And a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, that's like the giants, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that it is the Lord your God who's crossing over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and he will subdue them before you so that you may drive them out and destroy them quickly just as the Lord has spoken to you. 
I love this part. Do not say in your heart when the Lord your God has driven them out before you. Don't say, oh, because I'm such a good person and my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. I'm so good, Lord, you must have given it just for me. I'm special. He's like, nope. Because it's, but it is because of the wickedness of these nations the Lord is dispossessing them before you. And so the consuming fire of the Lord is a judgment against all nations, all peoples who set themselves up against God. The Lord is a consuming fire. And last, God's fire, this consuming fire, is a refining fire. Absolutely makes it clear that his refining fire is such that in Malachi 3, verse 2, it describes it like this. It says, Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Zechariah 13, 9 describes it like this. It says, I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name. I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. I think 1 Corinthians 3, uh, verse 11, describes God's refining fire best like this. It says, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. If any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he's built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as though through fire. I spent some time pondering the idea of my life, and which of my things in my life would be gold, silver, precious stones, and which those things would be wood, hay, and straw. The best analogy I could give you is a, is a sports analogy. Hope you like sports. I coach. I coach baseball. I coach soccer. I've been doing it for decades, and I love it. I have some trophies. I have some medals. I have some awards. That, I tell you, is wood, hay, and stubble. Every single one of those trophies is going to burn on the day the Lord comes. They're absolutely worth nothing in eternity. That is my reward, if you will. But the interactions I have with my players and their families and my opponents, and the umpires, and the referees, those interactions where I display the love, the compassion, the forgiveness of Christ, where I do something in, in, by the grace of God through my life to draw someone nearer to Jesus, that, my gold, my silver, my precious stones. Do you see it? I have to check my heart every day. I have a, every weekend I have a, a game, a tournament. What am I living for this weekend? Am I here to get the trophy? Am I here to yell at these kids so badly that they win at all costs? Or am I here to have a relationship then with, where, where they say, man, there's something about this guy. He talks about this Jesus a lot. I remember that. One of the best days of my life, I got a call 15 years or so after I coached a player. And I had her in seventh or eighth, seventh and eighth grade. She called me later when she had graduated college and she said, she called me up, said, hey, Coach Moo, 
I'm a Christian now. I said, oh, yeah, no kidding. Way to go, Natalie. She's like, yeah, you know, when you were coaching me, you used to talk about Jesus and stuff all the time. And it stuck with me. And it stuck with me, and it stuck with me, and it, like, ate away at me until I came to college, and it just finally clicked and made sense. And just the first thing I could think of was to call you and just say, man, thank you. And I was, like, floored. I mean, this is a young lady who I just barely remembered. came close to the family and stuff, but I just was just somebody I coached 20 years ago. And I stand before you not as a boast because I have very few stories like that. I pray in heaven I find out about maybe a myriad more don't know, but I, it's a heart check to me that like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm sowing seeds, whether I realize it or not, into people's lives. That's the gold, silver, precious stones. And this other stuff that I, that I in the flesh want to chase after for my ego or for pride or whatever, the trophies, the medals, the, the, it's all going to burn someday. Puts it in perspective for me. So yeah, God's a consuming fire. He's an all-consuming fire. Shane, are you there? Come on up, bud. So I want you to think about this. We talk about God as a consuming fire, and I want you to take that inventory. And I've got the sports areas. I've got family. I've got these different things and areas of my life. We're going to sing all-consuming fire. It's a great song. I don't often, I almost never call up uh, a worship leader and say, hey, could you play? I don't think I ever have, actually. It's the first time. And I, I said, hey, man, I'm teaching this verse. I know there's a song that goes with it. He's like, yeah. And I thought about that because this song, man, and I, I actually watched an interview of the man who wrote the song, All-Consuming Fire, and he was being sat down, and the guy said, hey, that's a pretty, um, like, deep song when you really think about it. It's like the consuming fire of God like kind of speaks a lot to his judgment. Like it's coming and the guy's like, yeah, yeah, it does. And that's, that's part of the nature of God. Just as much as nature is like is his love, is his judgment. And the Bible says, you know, yeah, we got to be standing before God with that reverential awe and that fear of the Lord and just say like he is God and I am not. And there needs to be that he is holy and I'm coming into him by, by the blood of someone else, not on my own good works, not by my own merit, but like because somebody else mediated for me and, and redeemed me and reconciled me to the Father. And so he's like, yeah, this song, he's like, and man, it reminds me every time he sings it when he was writing it that God is a consuming fire and I have things in my life that I need him to burn up. I've got areas in my heart where I'm like, Lord, you are a consuming fire. I don't even have the strength to give it to you. Just burn it up, take it away. And so, as we sing about God being a consuming fire, oh man, but he'd bring to mind by the power of the Spirit right now, my prayer that he'd bring to mind those things, those areas where those things that are maybe tempting you to come back, those things that, that you know, you, you've tasted and seen the Lord is good, but those things that are drawing you back, like, like the Hebrews are drawn back, like, like Esau was willing to sell his stuff for, like, like those things. Let him be a consuming fire. Let him judge and burn up those things and be gone with them forevermore. And let him refine you in that fire. Yeah? That consuming fire. Lord, that you would make me more like the image of Jesus day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute. So as you sing that song, just let those two, the judgment, yes, not in condemnation, 
not in guilt sense, as in a grateful, thankful sense that, you know what? Yes, I want to stand before you, God, and I want those things washed away. I want those things burned away, really. So have your way in me. And then, yeah, just refine me, Lord. Make sense? Yeah? Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, that you are a consuming fire. I don't know I've ever prayed that before out loud. I thank you that you're love. I thank you that you're grace and mercy and holy and forgiving. And I've, I thank you now, Lord, that you are a consuming fire. I thank you that any judgment you bring is righteous and perfect and holy. God, you are holy. And so I lay before you now my life, Lord. It's all that I have. But it's yours. Would you please, Lord, just burn away that which is not of you, which still remains of me in the flesh. The things in those areas of my heart, which I can't even seem to give you, Lord, I keep to myself, Lord, just have your way and and work in me that refining fire that my thoughts, my intentions, that they would be, Lord, just, just in line with you. So, Lord, just thank you for this night. Thank you for your word. May it continue, not just tonight, but through this week, just have its perfect work in our heart. Bring up those situations, those areas, those circumstances where this word will apply, where we can just remember Mount Zion and its goodness and we leave behind the Mount Sinai in our life. And so we love you, Lord. We praise and worship you now. In Jesus' name, amen.